Hello, patrons. It's Rose. Um, this is the bonus episode to go with the sunshade episode of the show, which is all about geoengineering. I'm going to talk about stuff that um, happens on that episode. So if you don't, if you haven't listened to it, probably go listen to that first. Um, before I get into that, um, a quick note about the audio on yesterday's episode. I know that some of you had audio issues yesterday on the episode that ranged from, you know, it sounded a little weird to it was completely unlistenable. Um, I spent a lot of yesterday tearing my hair out, trying to figure out what the hell was going on. Um, and a very kind friend, Mike Rugnetta, who actually you've heard on the show before, he was on the um, episode about uh, algorithms and art and art making and whether robots can make art. Um, he actually figured out the problem and helped me fix it. So the audio should be totally fixed now. Um, I apologize for anyone who tried to listen yesterday and couldn't. Um, if you re-download the episode, it will work now. It should sound fine. Um, I appreciate your patience on that. Uh, and I apologize again for the, the confusion. Um, and hopefully it won't happen again. I now know what I did wrong. So um, hopefully we've learned from, from this experience. Um, okay. So that's all fixed. Um, I want to talk today on this bonus episode about a couple of things. Um, one of them being modeling and climate change. So on the episode yesterday, uh, we talked a lot about models and what models can and can't do and what models do and don't tell us and whether modeling is the best place to sort of focus on when we think about decision making. Um, and the other thing I want to talk about is conspiracy theories <laughs> and chemtrails. So those of you who know me um, and have been listening to the show for a while probably know that I'm fascinated by conspiracy theories. Um, I think they're super interesting um, because they, they're a place to look at when we think about, you know, belief and truth and facts and how people decide what to believe and who to believe. Um, and because they often, you know, reflect some small nugget of of real fear of something that maybe is worth kind of thinking about and and worrying about that then gets sort of um, shown into a funhouse mirror and mutated into this sort of absurd, huge thing. Um, but you can see this in lots of different conspiracy theories, right? A lot of the time, the folks who are um, anti-vaccine, who believe that vaccines are causing things like autism, which they are not, um, a lot of those are women whose sort of have, you know, a reason to sometimes mistrust the medical establishment, given that doctors are really likely to distrust women's pain, that women tend to get underdiagnosed for certain things. Um, they have a, sort of a real reason to question the medical establishment in some situations. Um, and that kind of mutates into this fear of, of vaccines that is unfounded. Or, you know, you can think about the people who are um, paranoid about being surveilled, being watched all the time. There are people who believe that, you know, they're being watched all the time. And they're not. Um, but the government does surveil people, especially people who are activists. You know, there's been a lot of evidence that the FBI is surveilling people who are involved with Black Lives Matter, for example. You know, or you can think about people who are convinced that genetically modified crops are some sort of conspiracy and that they, you know, are going to kill us all. And and that comes from a small nugget of of real worry about giant agribusiness companies that have, in fact, polluted the environment and done things that are very unethical before and tried to cover them up. So there is often sort of a tiny sliver of not necessarily reality, but some sliver of, of worry that these conspiracy theories kind of reflect. And I think that um, in the context of chemtrails, there's something really interesting there to me personally. So chemtrails um, 
People who believe in chemtrails basically believe that the government is currently spraying chemicals into the atmosphere through planes. You know, they often will point to the sort of um, the the trails that are left behind jets um, or even not. Sometimes it's not even that. Sometimes it's just, you know, cloud formations that they haven't seen before that are slightly unusual. If you go to Twitter and you look for solar radiation management, most of the tweets that you're going to find are people who are posting photos of clouds who believe that this is happening. And um, I think that this is a really interesting place to think about the future of climate remediation and and why people are so worried about this. Um, I think there are two things that interest me about the chemtrails conspiracy theories. One is that I think that there is some amount of um, fear that's reflected in these in these conspiracy theories that is sort of a fear that I feel as well, which is not that the government is spraying chemicals into the atmosphere, but that there is this thing that's happening that we can't control, right? That the atmosphere above us sort of can't be pinned down. It can't be quarantined. You can't prevent whatever somebody next door sprays into the air from coming to you, right? You don't have control over the atmosphere. And that's sort of partially what got us into this mess, right? That like one person or one company or one country can do something and that can impact the atmosphere and that in turn impacts all of us. And that sort of, um, we have no control over that. And and that's sort of one of the things that's scary about climate change, right? Is that even if you emit zero carbon dioxide, right? Which is impossible. But even if you live the most sort of ascetic green, you know, CO2 um, minimal life, you're still impacted by climate change. You actually can't control the atmosphere. You can't control the thing that this huge amount of space above you. Oh, there's a train coming. Can you hear the train? I'm sitting in my office instead of in the studio, so you can hear the train tracks that are by my house. A little behind the scenes <laughs> action. Um, and the other thing that I think is interesting about chemtrails is that it's it's sort of true that the atmosphere is full of stuff that we probably shouldn't have put up there that is harming us, right? Governments and corporations are spraying stuff into the air that we know is really bad for us, but they won't stop. And some of them won't even admit that it's a problem, right? That's a description both of climate change and of chemtrails. So I think there's this really interesting connection between these two things. And, and they're sort of inherently linked. And and something that I think about and that Jane and I actually talked about that didn't make it into the episode this week is how geoengineering researchers do or don't address the chemtrail conspiracy theory people. Any research path that would get you answers to those questions is going to require some stuff outside, which means you're going to have to confront the chemtrails conspiracy theories. Like, you can't isolate, you can, there's no way to draw a boundary around the societal questions around this stuff. I do think that one of the reasons that we haven't seen more experiments, more actual sort of on the ground experiments when it comes to solar radiation management, sulfate aerosols, is because of the chemtrail people. It's because scientists are really worried that when they do start spraying stuff, they're going to be accused of spraying stuff, which is what they're doing. And that it becomes a much harder conversation. Right now you can kind of say, no, 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 this isn't happening. It's all modeling. We're just modeling. It's just computer simulations. But eventually you are going to have to spray stuff and you're going to have to sort of change your argument, change your rebuttal to some of these people. And instead of saying, no, no, this isn't happening, you have to say, no, I mean, yes, it is happening. We're doing it, but it doesn't, it's not going to have the impact that you think it's going to. And that's a much harder, I think, conversation to have. It's also a conversation that I think most scientists 
aren't necessarily super prepared for. Once you start trying to do these on-the-ground experiments, you're going to have to deal with that. Another reason I think that um, these on-the-ground engineering studies aren't happening um, is because once you start doing them, not only do you have to engage with conspiracy theorists, you also have to engage in policy questions immediately, right? You can't just, you know, do the study. Um, a lot of the time in science, you can just do the study and you don't necessarily have to engage with political questions from the very beginning. But when it comes to geoengineering, you kind of do have to engage with political questions. So Jane Flagel, who you heard on the episode, uh, she published a study called Engaging the Global South on Climate Engineering Research in Nature Climate Change. So when we did that public engagement exercise at Berkeley a couple of years ago, one of the things that struck me was that folks from outside of the U.S., even the ones who were supportive of research, felt like they had a stake in an outdoor experiment in the United States, even if it was impossible that it would have like transboundary impacts, because the intent was to generate knowledge about global climate management, essentially, intentional global climate management. Um, and that to me was both really telling and underscores how hard of a problem this is from kind of a design perspective. Um, because there's all, you know, that's just really, how do you do that? Who And for so me... they were saying that, like, sorry, just so I understand, they were saying that, like, if you in the U.S. are going to do a, an experiment in a field somewhere in the middle of the United States or whatever, yeah. we still feel like we should have some say in how that experiment goes down as, you know, what, an, a non-American country. Totally. Yep. Interesting. Yeah. And I think all of these things kind of help explain why there have been so few engineering studies. Not only is it hard, right? We talked in the episode about how it's actually probably pretty expensive and difficult to do these studies, but also they open up a couple of different Pandora's boxes, one of them being conspiracy theory people and the other one being this big picture policy question, which again, much like scientists aren't really trained to engage with conspiracy theorists, they're also not necessarily really trained to engage with policy questions or even with ethics questions. So not only is it like hard, just literally hard to do this stuff, it's also fraught. And so if you stick with these models, if you stick in the modeling world, you can kind of skirt all of those questions. And you can also kind of skirt some responsibility. You know, Dan Sarowitz and some others have pointed out that um, from a policymaking perspective, when you're confronted with really complicated decisions that have high stakes for a bunch of folks and are controversial, you know, you might stand to benefit from deferring authority to models, um, right? Because then you don't have to take responsibility, <laughs> as much responsibility for the outcomes of your choice. These models are almost kind of like a get out of jail free card. Not only can you say, oh, well, it's just a model, right? It's not a real picture. You don't have to be held accountable for what it predicts, but you also don't have to engage with some of these other questions. There's one other thing I want to say about models um, and climate change, and that's that Climate change people are obsessed with models, right? They're like very obsessed with models. Anytime you read anything about climate change, you're probably reading about models, right? The IPCC report is largely based on predictions based on these models about what might or might not happen. Folks who work on climate change have used these models in a couple of ways. One of them to kind of generate alarm, to say, hey, look, you know, we can actually predict what's going to happen and it's going to be this many feet of sea level rise and this many more hurricanes and, and this much more drought. You know, we can use these models, hopefully, to kind of take people by the shoulders and shake them and wake them up. 
But I think that there's an argument to be made that this focus on models, that this sort of singular focus on models that climate change conversations tend to have, has actually kind of shot climate change policy in the foot a little bit. There's kind of a, a certain set of pressure on the models, right, for political decision making. Like, what, what do we need to expect in terms of certainty to make wise policy choices? And climate, I think we've just done a terrible job. And by we, I mean those people advocating for aggressive action to reduce climate risk um, at, 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 at kind of confronting that model. And we've kind of contributed, actually, to the high evidentiary threshold by insisting that we can meet it instead of asking why the threshold ought to be so high in the first place to justify action. Basically, our whole argument for climate change action hinges on these models, right? Climate change models say that by, you know, X year, Y will happen unless we do Z. When you start digging into climate deniers and climate delayers, they talk a lot about needing better models or just not believing the models. And this is kind of where it gets tricky, right? Because models can always be improved. Models can always be tinkered with. Models can always be questioned. And it's important, I think, to argue about these models within science, right? It's important to improve them. It's important to tinker with them. These models are crucial. But somehow that argument about the details of the model has kind of hijacked the action argument. We've tied climate change action to model precision. And I think that that's weird and also bad because, again, climate change deniers and delayers can endlessly question the model. The model will never be perfect. And if we're waiting for the model to be exactly, precisely accurate, we've missed the chance to change anything and do anything about climate change. The other reason I think it's weird is that there are plenty of examples of, you know, public health style interventions, things that we've stepped in and done, where we've had a much lower level of confidence and precision in what might happen. And I actually think in the climate domain, if you think about other areas of societal decision making, the evidentiary standards are just much lower. Like, you don't need to be absolutely certain about the impact of X intervention in the public health context or in, you know, national defense or wherever to justify the intervention, right? It's sort of a, it's like a risk management frame. Very few people are like, well, you know, we shouldn't vaccinate because we don't have a good enough model for how the disease moves through the body and how it spreads through the environment and the population. We need a really perfect, precise model for how, you know, measles, mumps and rubella spreads through a population before we decide that we actually want to vaccinate. No one is saying that. That doesn't make any sense. And yet in climate change land, that's what we're saying. We're saying, well, you know, maybe we need better models to really understand what might be happening. I know that we all love science-based decision-making. That's like a buzzword right now. But science, bless it, I love it, you love it, I know we love it. It's a game of small, endless steps. It's a game of endless tinkering and improvement. And when it comes to climate change, we don't really have that kind of time. Okay, that's all the stuff that I kind of wanted to include in the episode, but I didn't have time for. Um, if you have questions or thoughts about this particular episode or this behind-the-scenes episode, get in touch. You know how to reach me. Um... A couple of little other behind-the-scenes things that I'll say before I go. One is that um, you heard the intro for this past episode. One of the cool things about this new format where I'm doing these little seasons of five episodes each is that all of the introductory scenes are connected. So every episode of this little mini-season about the Earth is going to start with that kind of television show-style intro where there's some sort of inventor pitching the same set of investors. So this past week, you heard about one of the inventions, and then in all the following weeks, you'll hear other inventions. Um, I got 
got to work with some really incredible actors for this, and I'm so excited for you to hear them. They were so funny. They were so fun to work with. It was really a delight um, and a joy. And I also got to record at a really cool place in San Francisco that I want to tell you about. It's called the Women's Audio Mission. And it's basically a nonprofit recording studio that is dedicated to getting women and girls involved in engineering and recording, which is so cool. So if you are in the Bay Area or San Francisco and you need a recording studio, definitely check them out. They're very cool. They have a very good mission. Okay, um, next season's theme is bodies, and I'm just kind of getting started on finalizing those episodes. So if you have thoughts or suggestions for futures related to bodies, whether those are human bodies, alien bodies, animal bodies, whatever it is that this makes you think of, um, feel free to get in touch. I'm all ears. I love hearing your ideas. Okay, um, you'll hear from me again next week with a new episode of the show and with a new bonus episode. Bye.